Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. We talk commodities prices as egg prices continue to fall. We'll also discuss an outbreak of foodborne illness and a couple of quick stories to wrap up, one of which involving Buffalo Wild Wings. But we begin this week as we ended last week's Food Focus in the Fast Casual Burger segment. Our podcast this week is brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. If you ever wonder why you cannot replicate the same results making coffee in your own house that you can get at a coffee shop, well, it's because coffee shops spend a lot of money to get the correct water, and now you can spend just as little as 10 cents per cup to get the perfect cup of coffee in your own home. Go to thirdwavewater.com and use the promo code FOCUS for 10% off your first order. So we begin, as I mentioned, with fast casual burgers, and the concept BurgerFi is now expanding with several new franchise agreements. We referenced BurgerFi only briefly last week as we were talking about the likes of Smashburger and their competitors, Five Guys and In-N-Out. The company is known, BurgerFi that is, for having all natural ingredients and creating what they call a better burger. The idea is that the burger may be better for you health-wise, but they also operate in a little bit more of a premium price segment than any of those other companies that we've mentioned that were founded recently in 2010. The new company, or newer company, is headquartered in North Palm Beach, Florida. It is privately owned, so we don't get a ton of ability to look at their financials, but according to the front page, to their website, BurgerFi.com. The burgers are always made out of Angus beef. They're 100% hormone and antibiotic-free, and their claim, of course, is that they are 200% delicious. Last week, again, we discussed Smashburger, their attempts to grow the franchise, a little bit of tumult in their front office. Any of those burger chains, Smashburger, Five Guys, In-N-Out, are competitors to BurgerFi. The difference here, though, is BurgerFi has a few more unique offerings. They operate a higher price point, and now they're trying to build out this chain. But for those that aren't familiar with BurgerFi, Leighton, what are some of the items on their menu that really differentiates them from the other fast casual offerings? In my opinion, if you were to compare them to the five guys and Shake Shacks of the world. They are, in my opinion, right in between those two concepts. Shake Shack is known for their all-natural offerings and really being transparent on their ingredient list, while Five Guys is known for their freshness and the quality of their food as well, how the beef is never frozen, etc. And I think right here you have a franchise offering that really sees the idea, the white space here in the United States and thinks that they can take advantage of this by offering their twist on things. And you can see this is reflective on their website. If you go to their burgers page, you can see their different unique offerings. There's some things that really stood out to me. Their innovation here as far as trying to add different types of ingredients, different sauces to their burger. For instance, they have a breakfast all-day burger, and this has the Angus beef, but American cheese, bacon, maple syrup, a fried egg, hash browns, grilled onions, and ketchup. So with them, you're really thinking outside the box here, and they also have another burger that's called the CEO, which has a brisket blend to it, has a candied bacon tomato jam and a truffle aioli, 
with aged Swiss cheese. So here it's pretty obvious to us at least that they are trying to differentiate themselves. And you talked a little bit about their history, Trent. They are a fairly new company and you see that in addition to gourmet burgers, the chain also offers hot dogs and shakes. Again, both of these things, Five Guys and Shake Shack do. Some of the locations serve wine and craft beer as well. The company attempts to source from locally owned breweries and those kinds of things. Many locations have outside seating and feature an open floor plane. If you look on their website, they showcase some of their locations, really trying to highlight the fact that almost it's 50-50 seating, 50% inside, 50% outside. Currently, BurgerFi has a presence that can be seen throughout the United States, and this is what I like about the concept and that they're getting these franchisees on board from all across the nation. For only having almost 100 locations, they really are spread out. Their website lists Kansas, Texas, Nebraska, Tennessee, Colorado, Illinois, among others. Obviously, they're trying to have a big push on the West Coast, and that is what this story is partially about. But BurgerFi was discussed in USA Today in about 2015, and they spoke of their worthiness in the upscale fast casual segment. But you've seen since that time, it's been two years now, they really haven't grown too much, but it looks as though now is the time. You talk about the deals with some new franchisees that have come aboard. This was announced last week. They've signed three new deals with existing franchisees in multiple markets. Each deal is considered a long-term deal in that each involves multiple locations that are going to be developed in time by each franchisee. Nine total new locations are to be built out with these agreements and this recent announcement, Raleigh, North Carolina will house three locations, one in Alabama, one in Georgia, two in Oregon, and two in the state of Washington. You can see, again, the geographical diversification here, Trent, in that they really are trying to spread out their presence, but they do see that they have built up some brand equity, and I think that's why they're building out multiple locations within the same type of market. In a quote from the chief executive officer at BurgerFi, Corey Winograd, he said, BurgerFi partners with experienced multi-unit franchisees who possess both focused commitment and infrastructure capability to successfully operate our fast casual concept. And I think this is something that, again, really speaks to the idea that they're going to be using experienced franchisees. These are people that have already had and seen experience within the concept. And I think seeing that the experienced managers are coming aboard is only going to be a good thing in the long term. You see a lot of other franchisees do this, particularly we, we spoke of Del Taco trying to acquire experienced franchisees. And then we speak of refranchising efforts from a lot of common QSRs that are even publicly traded. One coming to mind being Sonic, the other being Wendy's. And you see the fact that they have even bought back locations from underperforming franchisees in order to try to acquire somebody who's already been participating in a particular market that has seen success. So this is just going to be something that's kind of run of the mill. But again, a franchise operation that is expanding and they are doing so in a responsible fashion. It does become a little bit of a cycle, though, because as they are expecting experienced franchisees to jump on board, at the same time, they also usually require franchisees to be hands-on. And it can be difficult to find both experienced franchisees that are willing to grow 
and be hands-on. That's a difficult proposition when you own multiple restaurants in multiple different markets. You have to have your franchise network built out. And in an atmosphere where everyone is looking for experienced franchisees and everyone is trying to make deals and sweeten the pot for these experienced franchisees to come in, I think BurgerFi risks being crowded out of the marketplace because they do require their franchisees to be so hands-on. That being said, you might ask, what does it take to be a franchisee at BurgerFi? And when you compare it to other fast casual restaurants, it is a lot more expensive. According to their franchise investment page, initial investment for franchisees has a range of $720,000 to $970,000 per restaurant. And as I mentioned, they also require these investors to be hands-on operators, serve the need of a business on the full-time basis. It's not like other companies who are okay with having franchisees have other businesses' franchises. You pretty much have to be committed to BurgerFi in order to make this work. And again, you're placing kind of a limitation on growth when you do this and when you don't partner with maybe new franchisees or up-and-coming franchisees. If you've got that much liquid capital, capital to spend, you're doing something right overall. So it may not be a bad idea for them to expand their look and expand their outreach. As most other restaurants do, they offer support services once franchisees are on board, services with accounting, training employees, and point-of-sale systems. We've talked in the past about how it's important for franchise restaurants to use a unified point-of-sale system if there is some sort of attack or if there is some sort of delinquency somewhere in the system. It is more easily fixed that way and more easy for the business to get a hold on it and fix the problem. Now, if you compare these numbers and these requirements to other chains, to operate a Five Guys Burgers and Fries restaurant franchise usually takes around $150,000 to $360,000. So you're looking at about a third as much as what it would require, and in some cases even less depending on location, what it would take to acquire a BurgerFi franchise. You need to have $150,000 in liquid assets available, and the franchise fee is twenty-five grand. In most of these circumstances, these prices are underneath BurgerFi. Shake Shack, meanwhile, they only franchise or license internationally or in niche locations like ballparks or arenas. City Field in New York would be a good example of that. But aside from these recent deals, Layton, there is some current growth that this company in BurgerFi is seeing. And I think this is what's giving potential franchisees or these new franchisees that are signing on board a little bit of optimism for the future. Absolutely. I would love to dig in and see their same store sales metrics and see if they are positive. But you can see that anytime you grow the number of locations in a particular concept, you are going to see increasing revenue. And that's exactly what they're seeing. With $135 million in system-wide sales projected in this year, 2017, an increase of $28 million versus the 2016 revenue mark. BurgerFi currently has the 97 locations, 19 of which opened just last year. In 2017, management is planning 12 more restaurants, bringing in a total of 109 by year's end. And they said that they're going to be celebrating the 100th opening later this summer. They didn't give an exact date, but you saw several media outlets covering that. I'm sure they'll have a promotion circulating the event. This is all tied in to the revenue boost. And you see, if they have much more room to grow, it's going to be based off the demand 
and the other like concepts. And this is something we've talked about a lot with Shake Shack and that, yes, they have boosted their revenue projections and they have boosted the amount of openings they foresee in the next two to three years, but not by much. You only see maybe low to mid single digits every quarter opening for them. So how much room do you really see as far as BurgerFi here in the United States? Overall, you do see these steady eating trends that have been set by millennials trying to be focused on the ingredients of such things like burgers and chicken sandwiches, things of that nature, things that typical QSRs really haven't been bullish on trying to show off their new ingredient list. You look at a concept like McDonald's, they are basically holding the same list of ingredients in their burgers and their other meals that they have been for the past five to 10 years. But as we mentioned last week, the lunch sales of these restaurants have been slowly decreasing with the price point listed as a major turnoff. Trent, you mentioned that they are a little bit higher in price point for an average meal. So how many people are going to want to go into a BurgerFi to maybe drop $10, 12 $15 per meal? That's going to be something that we'll have to see. But overall, you can see the add-ons like the shakes and the sides are going to be a major player in boosting that ticket. But I spoke of me going into a Five Guys recently and dropping $15. I don't think it's going to be one of those things that people are going to go in every single lunch and procure one of these meals. I think it's going to be almost like a once a month type activity where you bring the whole family out maybe. And looking back to that USA Today article, they said that it is an excellent burger, but it's not necessarily going to be an iconic destination for some. And so I think by saying that, they're saying that it's going to be a big thing, but it's not necessarily going to have the cult following that like an In-N-Out does or a Five Guys. So a very interesting concept. And looking through their website, it does need work. If you compare it to their larger competitors, you can see that they have a lot more opportunity to grow out their infrastructure there. As far as the e-commerce side of things, we're talking about ordering via mobile, ordering via the internet. These types of things need to be played out a little bit better. And then also, if you look at their locations, you try to click on your current zip code, it really doesn't show all of their locations. It shows maybe only the top 10 locations that are nearest by. So I think a lot needs to be worked on there. But overall, a very interesting story with a company we have not covered in the past. We move on to our second story and one that Trent teased at the opening regarding commodity prices. This with egg prices as they've steadily gone down since the peak following the bird flu outbreak last year. We look at what this means for grocers and or the food service industry, speaking about restaurants. And we looked conveniently enough, Trent, the USDA recently released their weekly egg report on Monday of this week, so as to give us a little bit deeper look into the numbers. So as of this week, we see that prices to retailers from distributors and farmers are almost entirely under 72 cents per dozen. And again, looking at the large USDA grade A eggs here as well, the white eggs. And this is important because these are the most conventional egg that you can look at. So this is sort of the baseline for the industry the difference here being New York, where prices delivered to store sit at around 75 to 79 cents per dozen, so a little bit more expensive in that metropolitan area. New York retailers are also banking on high margins needed for things like high rent costs and whatnot. 
and the price points to consumers are mostly in the $1.79 to $2.99 range. So again, a little more than you would see throughout the rest of the country. The USDA says that the egg industry undertone is mostly steady to weak and the retail demand is only good where features are planned or in progress. Otherwise, it is fairly light. They also mentioned that currently supplies can be heavy for certain needs. The number of available marketable eggs also went up this week versus last 1.385 million cases of 30 dozen eggs. This is a 3.9% increase overall with inventory going up a whopping 20.2% in the Northwest region. At the same time, the amount sold to retailers has remained flat. So Trent, it looks like the industry is doing a fairly good job at sustaining. However, if you compare the numbers to two years ago, there are some interesting facts. And of course, two years ago, we were in the midst of the bird flu epidemic that caused a number of chickens to die. We'll talk about that in just a second. But as Leighton addressed, the amount of eggs being produced has gone up, but the amount sold to retailers has remained flat. This is indicative of an overwhelming supply as compared to the demand for retailers and likewise the demand for consumers. But as of two years ago, in May of 2015, the price farms received for a dozen eggs was $1.73. It's 63 cents currently, so you're looking at a $1.10 reduction from where it was two years ago. Now, price from that bird flu issue peaked in late summer of 2015, with farms receiving $2.39 per dozen in August 2015. That's nearly four times what they're receiving per dozen as of last month. The average retail price of a dozen eggs in 2015 was $2.75 if you take the entire year as a whole. Last year, it was $1.38, so it already took a massive step down last year. It could potentially be even lower in 2017 because of those features that Leighton mentioned. There are these features that are put into place, and when we mean features, we mean either ad sales through these grocers or maybe a particular push for eggs. Maybe they're trying to market eggs in a different way or they have them featured on a refrigerated end cap. But currently, 2017 is expected to be on pace to achieve the lowest full-year average egg price since 2004 when they were just $1.20 per dozen at the grocery store on average. There are a number of possible reasons for this pricing going down, and one reason that Leighton and I had off the air in preparation for this story hypothesized was that potentially the demand for organic or cage-free eggs going up has dented the traditional egg market. All of these numbers that we've talked about to this point are for conventionally raised large grade A white eggs. However, looking a little bit deeper, the USDA also releases information about the organic egg market, and we see that demand here is again mostly light to moderate from grocers and from consumers while supplies are moderate to heavy. This implies that producers are not necessarily struggling to keep up with consumer demand in organic eggs. It also implies that because demand is flat across the board, organic consumers are not looking to traditionally grown eggs as substitute goods, as sometimes you will have happen when one is priced so far above the other. Much of the country right now is seeing features in some grocers as low as 69 or 59 cents per dozen eggs 
And surprisingly enough, the fact that demand hasn't waned in organic eggs tells us that people that shop for organic eggs are more or less stuck on that idea and they won't reach out towards those white eggs as a substitute good despite the fact that they are significantly cheaper. In case listeners are wondering, prices per carton as delivered for organic brown large eggs are around $2.65 to $3 per dozen. This reflects a over a four times premium for the organic product, much greater than you'll see the organic premium for a great majority of other items in the grocery store, including staples such as bread and meat. However, inventory for specialty shell eggs, and this includes cage-free, non-organic brown, organic, and ungraded eggs, did go down 3.4% this week versus last. So that might be something to keep an eye on long term. If you continue to see organic egg inventories decrease slightly across the nation, then you might see more people reaching out for those regular white eggs as substitute terms. So Leighton, we developed a new hypothesis here, and it's more or less that egg producers overcompensated as supply waned following the bird flu outbreak in 2015. And this created an influx of supply in a market with only modest demand. And that's what we're seeing now. That's what we started seeing last summer. So let us recall the effects of the 2015 bird flu outbreak. In the spring of 2015, bird flu was discovered among hens in Minnesota, Iowa, and parts of Missouri. Many of these chickens, of course, were eventually taken out of the supply chain as to a not affect the supply, but 30 million of around 300 million egg-laying hens in the United States were killed by May of 2015 to prevent the spread of the bird flu. It was said that around 90% of the eggs were taken out of production were intended for egg processing, which are the eggs most used by quick-service restaurants and full-service restaurants where they have scrambled egg mix, for instance, that is used to try to make things a little faster in the back-end process. And according to CNN, Cisco went so far as to talk to their customers about changing their menus to keep egg demand down while the supply was at a massive low. And this is interesting, Trent, because you see this report coming out and you see how it really tied into the industry at that time. And so if you compare it to today, they're actually doing just the opposite. They're trying to include egg in more of their menu offerings. So I think this is a fascinating concept of a supplier trying to have input into the day-to-day operations at these QSRs. Prices ended up shooting up around 250% on the whole, both for shell and breaker eggs. So then our listeners might ask, how long may it take a chicken to begin laying eggs? Or in other words, how long until the supply might be replenished? Chickens begin laying eggs as pullets or juveniles after about six months. However, these eggs are smaller and usually not sold in a retail setting. Perhaps you might see them at farmer's markets, etc., being those smaller ones. But in this case, they would have to begin laying pullets in around January, February. So demand would not have been replenished until about the summer of 2016. Indeed, we look at the prices to the farmer did go down significantly at that time. However, retail prices of eggs went down slightly, but have taken more of a dive this year. And we see the overarching effects on the pricing in three types of businesses here. We'll start off with retailers. As we have seen an increase in promotional activity surrounding eggs, or as the USDA calls it, features. And obviously, we speak of features a lot here on both the Food Focus and Retail Focus podcast, but these are promotional things that the stores can do 
at the individual locations and down their aisles to try to increase the revenue from eggs. And this week alone, 43.2% of participating reporting grocers in the United States ran features on eggs compared to 34.2% last week and 33.9% the week prior. Over the last month, feature prices per dozen have averaged right around 90 cents for large white eggs. And so you see that this is potentially working to increase the revenue and demand at the individual locations. And lest we think that this activity is constrained to conventionally raised activity, it's not as we see that last week, 48% more retailers issue a promotional price on brown organic eggs than the same week in the prior year. So not just the conventional eggs, but also trying to push those organic eggs as well, Trent. Part of this for retailers is as a result of the so-so demand for eggs that we've discussed, how the demand is not necessarily going up as supplies also raise. But also we're seeing pricing pressure come into play as we've talked about grocery deflation, that type of thing. You also see pricing pressure put on one another by the likes of Kroger, Walmart, but also another side impact here for retailers in general from the lower price of eggs is that more dollar stores have been able to carry one dozen eggs at a dollar price point than two years ago where basically no one was able to carry a dozen eggs at a one dollar price point. And this in turn creates even more pricing pressure for those standard retailers. We noted on Retail Focus, our sister podcast recently, about 99 cents only stores moving towards selling eggs at all of their locations between them, Dollar Tree, and even Big Lots. This creates a lot of pressure on the mainstream grocers to attract traffic for those staple goods. When you think of staple goods, milk, eggs, bread, meat, etc., As we jump from grocers to the restaurant industry for full-service restaurants and quick-service restaurants, this is obviously an opportunity to increase margins on food in a time where wage inflation is negatively impacting margins. They're paying less, in many cases, for these eggs, and that will help to compensate these businesses back for increasing wages for their employees. As recently as March, the price per dozen that farms were receiving was around 15 cents higher this translates into shaving as much as 25 to 30 cents per dozen off for certain restaurants. Now, if you're McDonald's, you're probably dealing directly with suppliers or farms and you're dealing in a lot larger scale. It was this number nearly twice as high in December, the amount that was going to farms for eggs. But this is common as supply wanes in cold weather and chickens don't lay as many eggs during cold weather times. In 2015, just to give you an idea of how many eggs are used in the industry, McDonald's bought over 4% of all eggs created in the U.S. This number is said to have gone up more recently due to the rollouts of All Day Breakfast and All Day Breakfast 2.0, but we have no concrete data to support that they've actually purchased more eggs of recent or at least more market share of eggs over the last couple of years. Assuming that McDonald's uses roughly 2 billion eggs per year. It was around 1.8 billion in 2015 and that they pay direct to farm rates, which again, we're not sure exactly how much that quoted price is on average for McDonald's for eggs. Even a one cent fluctuation in average egg prices can produce a $20 million swing on the McDonald's bottom line 
on a yearly basis. So McDonald's is a company that's watching these egg pricing dynamics very carefully. But it's not just them. Denny's serves more than 400 million eggs each year, according to their press release last year regarding their commitment to cage-free eggs by 2026. A one-cent swing in yearly price average for Denny's, therefore, is a $4 million swing for them, which is still incredibly substantial, especially for franchisees, as most Denny's locations are franchise-owned. IHOP, surprisingly, only uses about 200 14 million eggs, according to franchisee Sunshine Restaurant Partners. And looking beyond the restaurant industry, keep in mind also the impact for prepackaged and shelf-stable foods as well. When we talk about Denny's using 400 million eggs per year, Hellman's, which is owned by Unilever, for example, uses 350 million eggs yearly to make its mayonnaise. So they use nearly as many eggs as a restaurant like Denny's would, and they too stand in position to reap the benefit of these decreased egg prices. The Food Focus Podcast is brought to you by Third Wave Water and thirdwavewater.com. Do you ever wonder why the coffee you make at home never quite tastes as good as the coffee you buy at a coffee shop? Let me let you in on the secret here. Coffee shops spend thousands of dollars to make the perfect water for making coffee. And now for as little as 10 cents per cup, you can duplicate that fantastic caffeinated magic at home. Third Wave Water has a patent-pending formula of minerals that, when added to a gallon of distilled water, makes for coffee brewing magic. Recently, at the U.S. Brewers' Cup Championship, both the first and second place finishers brewed their coffee with Third Wave Water. Please check out their website today at thirdwavewater.com. Use the promo code FOCUS, that's F-O-C-U-S, for 10% off your first order of Third Wave Water. Do it, check it out. We're both customers of it. I have become absolutely addicted to the product for making coffee on the road or at home when I can't visit my favorite coffee shop. Check them out, Third Wave Water at thirdwavewater.com. We switch to a food safety issue that has affected multiple states, and we look at the what, when, and where from this story, and we see that Hawaii's Department of Health first recalled some yellowfin tuna products on May 1st when samples had traces of hepatitis A. First reports were out on Friday, June 2nd from the FDA here recently. And you and I, Trent, had picked up this story from foodsafetynews.com, which is an excellent resource that we look at on a weekly basis to see if there's anything that is highlighted that should be of prevalence for the Food Focus podcast. But over the week, we see that CNBC, CNN, and other major media outlets have been covering the story after it was first released. We occasionally see that these bigger food headlines don't make it out to the major media outlets, but with this one, there was a big push to get this out and to let consumers know of the potential dangers here with these particular food products. Overall, this has been a very large-scale recall. Hepatitis A has been found in certain yellowfin tuna that has been sold in California, New York, Texas, and Oklahoma. Some media outlets had actually left out New York, which we found interesting. But the product is not the conventional smaller cans of tuna, but rather 8-ounce tuna steaks with an expiration date of October 1st, 2018. And individually vacuum-packed 15-pound frozen tuna cubes dated April 1st, 2019. The specific codes there in question are on the FDA's food safety website. We dig in just a little bit deeper and see that the CDC and FDA announced 
a recall after a two-week in-house recall that was started by the Hilo Fish Company in Hilo, Hawaii. We see that government agencies are, quote, assisting state and local officials in assessing the risk of hepatitis A virus exposure from contaminated frozen tuna sourced from Sustainable Seafood Company in Vietnam and Santa Cruz Seafood Incorporated in the Philippines. Obviously, the contaminated fish most likely came from one of these sources, not both. The FDA has posted a list of grocers and restaurants that have received the tuna. Foodsafetynews.com stated that this was a rare move because they had already sent recall notices to the affected restaurants and retailers, so they usually don't send out a second recall listing the specific entities that will have received this frozen tuna. They said this is typically identified as confidential corporate information. The reason for this is basically they don't want to hinder those businesses running on a day-to-day basis. You see how this may cause a lot of traffic to decrease at a certain QSR or full-service restaurant because a lot of people equate a food issue with the entity overall. However, that is not usually the case. It's from a supplier, not the restaurant as a whole, like we saw with Chipotle and their processes from a year ago. But no illnesses reported as of yet, Trent, so that is good news for those that are affected. However, at the same time, news agencies are making it clear that people may not immediately feel the effects of the virus. Some may first start to feel ill after about two months' time. So it's very similar to a number of other foodborne illnesses or pathogens where you don't feel it immediately, but it could be as much as six months after the case here with hepatitis A. You're looking at about two months' time. Others may start to feel it within two weeks, so a little bit sooner. According to the Mayo Clinic, Leighton and I had to kind of look up what some of these signs and symptoms of hepatitis A might be, since it is a, certainly a varied disease and not a disease that gets a ton of press. These symptoms don't appear until you've had the virus for a few weeks, and they might include the typical type fatigue, nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain and discomfort, those that we see from a lot of other foodborne pathogens, but they also mention loss of appetite, low-grade fever, joint pain, and the big one, jaundice, which is yellowing of the skin and eyes. The FDA and CDC advise those who might have eaten the fish and feel symptoms to see their doctor, but certainly hepatitis A, nothing to mess around with, just like salmonella and E. coli, just not a foodborne pathogen, unlike those other two, that we hear a lot about. So that, I think, adds to the novelty of this food safety recall. We're going to close out the podcast with two quick stories. First, a shakeup at Buffalo Wild Wings driven in part by activists and investors. Let's give you a little background on this story as we breeze through it. Mercado Capital Management gradually increased their position in Buffalo Wild Wings to over 9% over the past year. They are the activist investor we speak of. This led to Marcato eventually achieving this activist investor status when they lobbied against Buffalo Wild Wings' existing vision. This came after Buffalo Wild Wings did a minor overhaul of their board and nominated several new board members in late 2016. The obvious next step then for Marcato was something called a proxy war when the board of directors was to be elected this week. Basically, this was borne out on the internet and through media with Mick McGuire, the head of Mercado, going on CNBC to outline his future strategy. And Buffalo Wild Wings 
throwing out a number of press releases and letters to shareholders about how their plan, which was hatched just in uh, October and November when they introduced these new board members, needs a little bit more time to work. Mercado Capital Management even created a website. It's called winningatwildwings.com to promote their agenda and to promote their proxy ballot. Buffalo Wild Wings just two days before the election of board members by shareholders issued another press release urging shareholders to vote for their proxy ballot, which even included a couple of people recommended by Marcato. Basically, though, it came down to this argument. Marcato suggested Buffalo Wild Wings was more or less not creating value for shareholders, and Buffalo Wild Wings suggested Marcato was going to tank the company short term to inflate value and then sell their stake. Basically, selling off a number of restaurants to franchisees, hurting long-term profitability potentially of the restaurant chain, saying that Mercado was just in this for a relatively quick swing. And as it turned out, Leighton Mercado ended up more or less winning the proxy war. Just prior to June 2nd, on May 31st, Sally Smith penned a letter to shareholders basically begging them to adopt the board nominees on the yellow card proxy and we see each of the proposals had a list of nominees the yellow card had both sally smith and jay oliver madgard however you see the results here as the vote turned out they did not include sally smith or oliver madgard however scott o Burgeon and richard t mcguire the third this is interesting in that jay oliver madgard and most importantly sally j smith were not nominated, but they're very integral parts of the company. Obviously, Sally Smith and her record here and Rovit and Fields were existing Mercado nominees that Buffalo Wild Wings agreed to given their past experience in the industry. Mick McGuire is the founder of Mercado Hedge Fund, and Scott O'Bergren is a hand-picked board member picked by Mercado, that is. So they're trying to have a bigger implication here with having their own nominees on the board but you see that buffalo wild wings bristled against both in a letter to shareholders a month ago saying that shaking up the board after the newest members came on in late 2016 was unnecessary and borderline dangerous for the company bergren does have ample experience in the restaurant industry as a previous ceo with pizza hut's domestic and global firms however mcguire has little restaurant experience built in his proxy fight platform on the whole sell off all company run stores to franchisees actions you see that with the refranchising efforts that we've been talking about for over six months now the overall effect for the company will be to boost the balance sheet in the short term but this may hamper long-term margins and you see this with those companies that are refranchising, Trent, you see short-term revenues affected. Hopefully, longer-term success will be had. Maybe that's what they're trying to achieve. However, a lot of criticism surrounding these moves. He also talked about boosting restaurant-level margins, which, if we're to be honest, does not really matter much as long as you have the franchisees running the show because this is really handing off the power to the individual franchisees and some of the times you look at these restaurants with a lot of locations and if you try to blitz all of the refranchising efforts in a set time period, you look and see that a lot of managers have less experience operating these restaurants. So it's harder to push on higher level margins effectively. So how this ties into Smith's resignation, Smith, who has led Buffalo Wild Wings since 2003, will retire 
by the end of the year. Since they went public in 2003, she's guided them to growth from $12 a share after their IPO to around $142 a share, which is what it's trading at today. And this seems very good, Trent. She has a very long, respectable track record with the company, but shares have been off from their all-time high from around September 2016 when shares hit $202 a share. But over the last two years, the company has had issues, so you see some stagnation in the share price. And Buffalo Wild Wings is not the only company to succumb to activism pressure. We see a lot of talk about Whole Foods Market trying to go into different directions, both strategically and from a leadership standpoint. And then also Bill Ackman's advice with Chipotle over the past six months has actually helped that company out a little bit as he owns around 10% of the company there. But you see longtime activist investors like Bill Ackman, like Carl Icahn, they have really made their careers out of trying to change the companies from within companies that they either see short-term benefit or just long-term better functionality. And I think that is the main question here with Buffalo Wild Wings. Is it a short-term play in reality or is it truly a long-term sustainable action plan for Buffalo Wild Wings to have a great long future in the full-service restaurant space? It seems salient to note here that Mick McGuire is actually a protege of Bill Ackman. So he's kind of following this Ackman plan, as Bloomberg pointed out earlier last week when the shareholder news kind of broke regarding the proxy fight and which way it went. The biggest argument, as Leighton mentioned, against Sally Smith was the fact that the company had stagnated over the last few years, but they've seen substantial headwinds. They've struggled to stay ahead of shifting consumer preferences for one, but the second one is not anything that an activist investor would change because it's large input costs, particularly for wings, cutting down their restaurant-level margins. And I think it's interesting that you have this activist investor talking about shaving restaurant-level margins and that type of thing while also talking about refranchising. And Layton's right, when you refranchise a number of stores in a short period of time and you're not necessarily too picky about who you franchise them out to, that could hurt the long-term viability of the company, particularly if some franchisees that don't maybe know what they're doing get put in charge of these individual restaurants. Buffalo Wild Wings has been trying to refranchise for years and years, but has struggled to find applicable franchisees that want to take over a Buffalo Wild Wings restaurant. Basically, in all, let's not pretend like Mercado's win in the proxy fight signals better days ahead for Buffalo Wild Wings. There will no doubt be some sort of a financial burden going forward as a result of Smith's departure. Retirement packages aren't cheap, nor are searches, and they have a very, very long way to go before boosting their same-store sales upward as they've been down significantly over the past six to seven quarters. They may benefit in the short term from the sale of company-owned units, but still you've got to answer for profitability in the long term. And this aggressive refranchising may lead at least temporarily or permanently to better company operating margins, but it could A, also lead to lower same-store sales if restaurants stretch thin franchisees that may be experienced, and B, it may also lead to a lack of revenue coming in because with the company-owned stores, obviously, you get all of that top-line revenue. So how will investors react when you see that reduction in top-line revenue? Other restaurants that have refranchised have seen investors get spooked from that top-line revenue reduction, even if profits remain fairly robust. So all of these 
kind of indicate that people should take this issue with a grain of salt regarding Marcotta winning the proxy fight at Buffalo Wild Wings. For our last story, we have some slight closure on the Ignite Restaurant Group ordeal as none other but Kelly Investment Group has submitted a stocking horse bid for Ignite and its assets. Unlike many stocking horse bidders at retail bankruptcies in the food and service industries, this does not necessarily mean imminent liquidation. Just a little bit of background on a stocking horse bid. Usually it's an agreement that comes before an auction in an impending bankruptcy. And this is the overall intent here is to maximize the value of the assets from Ignite Restaurant Group. And you see that right here, it is a fairly substantial bid if you compare it to the assets versus liabilities. The Kelly Investment Group is offering around $50 million reportedly for the assets that include both Joe's Crab Shack and Brickhouse Tavern. If you dig a little bit further into Kelly Investment Group, this is the same exact company that had bought Champs and Fox and Hound. They're the major operator there. And there were some closures through those concepts, but the company actually ended up keeping it alive. Both you and I were very surprised, but the wholly owned subsidiary Fun Eats and Drinks LLC saw that there was some value left within those concepts, Trent. And Kelly Investment Group, this is kind of what they do. They're a private equity group founded by Michael Kelly in 1993. And according to their website, their company acquisitions group seeks complicated transactions that enable us to leverage our ability to complete due diligence quickly and fund change of control transactions as principals with our own balance sheet. This basically saying that they can use their cash as sort of a reserve for these companies that are in trouble. And you saw that was exactly the case with Fox and Hound is their operating cash flow was just hemorrhaging out on a weekly basis, millions of dollars to continue operations there. And they actually came in and were able to keep that company alive and afloat until they closed on the deal. Their holdings include experience-centric restaurants, entertainment centers, hotels, parking facilities, apartments, and resorts, so a lot of service-oriented industry there. Joe's Crab Shack certainly fits in the experience-centric category as they do have a very big cult following, as we discussed before the bankruptcy has been made official. Let's talk about some of these specifics regarding the deal. Again, it is a deal in place pre-bankruptcy auction, meaning that Kelly is working from an advantageous position going into the auction, essentially as a stocking horse bidder. Kelly Investment has bid $50 million for the chain, but this is not a guarantee that they acquire the chain as they could get outbid. However, this is highly unlikely as Ignite was working with a number of potential buyers and this was the best deal they could get pre-bankruptcy auction. Kelly, who, as we mentioned, is the CEO of the company, Kelly Companies, that will potentially take over Ignite Brands, said that he is, and I quote, excited about acquiring a well-known national brand such as Joe's Crab Shack and Brickhouse Tavern and Tap. We look forward to delivering great food and impeccable customer service to the many valued customers of Joe's and Brickhouse, end quote. Court filings for the bankruptcy suggest that there were seven potential bidders or buyers originally for Ignite, and two companies were also interested in providing financing, meaning the original ownership would retain their position in the company. However, it was very clear that Ignite necessarily didn't want to continue to operate the company, and a lot of these offers, these seven offers that we talk about, evaporated after, as the company says, investors 
investors became worried about certain trends in the FSR industry as a whole, as well as declining same-store sales numbers and margins. And honestly, investors had every right to be spooked by the declining same-store sales numbers because those are the reasons that Joe's was seeking to sell themselves or Ignite was seeking to sell themselves in the first place is because the business had basically no longer become viable. Not all offers evaporated. There were a few that Ignite saw as not viable, meaning they were probably underbid somewhat from where Kelly came in. This all came after speculation from Debtwire that Landry's and American Blue Ribbon Holdings might have been interested in Ignite as recently as last week. Landry's was Ignite's former owner, technically Joe's Crab Shack's former owner, as they acquired Joe's Crab Shack in 1994 when they had just one location in Houston, but they sold them off to J.H. Whitney and Company, a.k.a. J.C.S. Holdings, LLC, in 2006. By that time, Joe's Crab Shack had 120 locations, and they sold for $192 million, an assumption of $225 million in liabilities. And we can see from this sale that really they were never on solid financial footing over the last 11 to 12 years, given the sale price and the amount of liabilities they had on hand. JCS Holdings later became Ignite in 2009, went public in 2012. Now, if you're asking about American Blue Ribbon Holdings that were also potentially in talks to purchase Ignite, they oversee O'Charlie's, 99 Restaurant and Pub, Village Inn, and Baker's Square. So basically a motley mix of full-service restaurants. According to Nation's Restaurant News, KRG Acquisitions Company, LLC, which is a subsidiary of Kelly, did outbid the other two. Thus, the word that the other bids were not viable as far as Ignite was concerned. Currently, Ignite lists $197 million in liabilities and $153 million in assets. Again, drastic decline in assets from their 2006 purchase. So again, we'll wait and see and give our listeners an update once the bankruptcy auction is complete on whether or not Kelly is able to acquire Ignite as they had done with Fox and Hound earlier. Well, we conclude our Food Focus podcast as we do every week with a segment we call What We Ate. And again, something we ate or drank that's new to us or new to the world of food over the last week. And we begin with Layton. A second week in a row, actually, that is something I drank. Last week, I had the Bolt House Farms coffee and protein drink. This week, I went a little different avenue. I went to my local Costco and got the palm pomegranate blueberry drink. It's 100% juice, so there's no additives, no extra sugar. However, that is not to say it does not have sugar. 21 grams of sugar for an 8-ounce serving, and you see around 150 calories for the one serving there. But this is what was interesting to me is the price point. It was around only $8 for a whole jug of this. This is a, a fairly common drink, but usually you see a higher price point. That is what caught my attention. One reason being that it was served at my local Costco, so obviously they were able to get some bigger pricing deals. But... Also, the fact that Costco had it on sale. They had one of their instant rebates on that particular product. But overall, you see that the product, having been infused with blueberry, really does make it more palatable. You see that the overall pomegranate really is in the background with this particular drink. And with the no sugars added, Trent, and just those very few ingredients, you're looking at a product that is very good. And it was flying off the shelves, in fact, probably one of the reasons they are doing the instant savings rebate on it to try to boost the demand for the drink. Pomegranate is supposed to have some anti-inflammatory effects. 
and this is something I had read up on before purchasing the drink, but a very tasty drink, one that I highly recommend. Again, all natural, no additional sugars, something that a lot of people that are health conscious have been looking at more and more is that sugar content. And so again, with those blueberry undertones, something I highly recommend. My product, as it often is, is not something that's necessarily brand new, but it is something that is being distributed a little bit further throughout the United States as they sign increased distribution agreements. And what I'm talking about here is a product by Flamus. They're falafel chips. They have a line of falafel chips and zatar chips as well. This kind of ties into our theme we discussed two weeks ago when we were talking about the Sweets and Snack Expo in Chicago. Some trends that they noted was the increased use of garbanzo beans. Here, this product, their original falafel chips, is what I tried. They actually have a number of different protein sources. It's not just chickpeas, but also fava beans, black beans, and pinto beans. In addition, they have 17 other herbs and vegetables as well as spices that go in to this product. And my whole draw towards this product was that I am a big fan of falafel, but it is somewhat difficult to get good falafel if you're not at a restaurant. These chips, remarkably, the first two especially, tasted like falafel right on the dot. Tasted like some of the better falafel you'll get in a Mediterranean restaurant. That being said, the more you ate them, the more they became just like basically a seasoned corn chip on the tongue. But overall, I enjoyed this product. 123 calories per serving, and it came in a container that held 8 ounces of chips. The price point I got them at was $3.49. Of course, your mileage may vary on that. But a good nutritional profile here, 3 whole grams of protein, which you don't usually see for most of your traditional corn chips. And they actually have a store locator on their website, which is flamusbrands.com. And you can see how they are increasing distribution throughout the U.S. It is somewhat hit or miss as far as certain stores carrying it and others not but they're starting to be distributed further and so perhaps you'd be able to get these in your neck of the woods that'll do it for us here on the food focus podcast for Layton, i'm trent again if you haven't heard already check out our video online we'll be doing one video a week for the retail focus podcast previewing a particular topic that comes out earlier in the week check that out on our twitter page we'll have it at the food focus and at retail podcast you can follow us on youtube at retail focus podcast also a quick reminder that if you see a story out in the wild that you think we should cover shoot us an email retail podcast at gmail.com we'll be back later this week with the retail focus This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.